So if you haven't been with us, we're going through the series in the summer, uh, and the series is called The Universe Next Door. And uh, it's part of a, what we're calling a meta-series that will happen each and every summer. And the meta-series is called My Best Conversation, or My Best Conversations. And uh, the reason we're talking about conversations, you'll hear it over and over again, is I'm annoyingly passionate about having great conversations, bigger, better, more substantial conversations. And the reason that is, is because I believe God is a conversational God. He wants us to have great conversations that include talking about who he is. And uh, the problem is, is that what, in my experience, and I believe it's true if you think about it, is that we do not have great conversations very often. And one of the reasons we've talked about is because uh, we have great fear around conversations. And uh, one of the things that I hope this series and other series that we'll do during the summers will do is to mitigate our fear. And this particular series, The Universe Next Door, um, is trying to mitigate the fear of these types of substantial conversations by helping us to gain awareness, familiarity with the way other people see and view and process the world. This will actually make us better listeners. We'll be able to stick in conversations longer we won't flee, change the subject, or get argumentative. That's my hope. By gaining familiarity and awareness with the way other people see, view, process the world. And one term to use in this type of discussion is worldviews. So we've been talking about worldviews. We've been using this book called The Universe Next Door by James Sire. I highly recommend buying it. It's a great book to have in your personal library. James Sire, S-I-R-E, The Universe Next Door. And we've been going through it looking at other worldviews, and we'll look at a total of eight by the end of this series, which will last through uh, most of September before we do our big uh, first fall celebration at the end of September. It's either going to be the end of September or the first uh, week in October. We'll be going through and we're looking at this. What are these other worldviews? And James Sire defines worldviews, and it's written in your bulletin as this. A worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or a set of presuppositions, assumptions, which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, that we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. So basically, a worldview is what you believe about everything and whether you know it or not, you make your decisions and you act based on it. And even though you might say you believe one thing, the way you act will actually prove out what your actual worldview is. Clear as mud. But we've been looking at it, and there's eight questions uh, that help us to frame what a worldview is. Those are also in your bulletin. And my hope is by the end of this, of course, that we understand how other uh, people would answer these questions, people with other worldviews, and that is not limited to other religions, but includes other religions, but also that we would think about and consider our own worldview, how we answer these questions, why we answer these questions, and uh, we want to ask the same questions of every worldview, including our own. Um, we want to ask, is it congruent, which means with our experience as we live it in, in life, uh, is this actually make sense based on uh, the real world. Is it consistent within itself, meaning 
Uh, hopefully it doesn't contradict itself. We don't say one thing and another thing that actually don't match up. Is it consistent? And then is it coherent? Which means is it reasonable and rational and cogent? And I believe, of course, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I'm a Christian. I believe in the, in the Christian worldview and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask these questions of my own worldview. And I definitely want my understanding of the world to be reasonable, rational, and cogent. So my goal here and our goal, hopefully, when we get into these kind of great conversations where we might uncover uh, that people see the world differently, is not to disparage other religions or worldviews, but to understand them and then actually be able to better articulate the gospel and how the gospel differs from these other worldviews and hopefully how the gospel refreshes people as they've been living in the world in a way where they miss out on the beauty of the gospel. That's kind of my hope. And uh, each week I'm tackling a lot of subject. And uh, I know it's hot. If you need to step downstairs, there's a door outside. It's very cool downstairs. I will not be angry at you unless your name's Ben Creelman. So let's get going and look at today's worldview. Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at um, a worldview known as deism. Deism, which is basically that there is a God, but he's more of a clockmaker God, meaning he's made, made the universe like a clock, he's wound it up, and then he's let it run, and he doesn't get involved in it anymore. In fact, he can't be involved in it. He's uh, far away. And we've said that deism is actually very close to home because I believe this is my slip, and I believe many Christians sitting in churches around the country and around uh, the world, particularly in the Western world, slip into what we call functional deism, which means we might theoretically say that we hold a traditional classic Christian worldview, which says God can work in the world, but we're functional deists, meaning we actually live as though he doesn't. And so when I personally slip into this, oftentimes it looks like me not praying like it matters, studying God's word, not as real communication from God, but just as uh, an activity to do, uh, not worshiping Jesus Christ as God the Son, and not looking for, asking for, and expecting miracles. So we talked about that, and we said, um, even ourselves, we have to be careful that we don't fall into these uh, functional worldviews even when we claim one worldview. So that's my slip. And so today what we're going to be looking at is a worldview known as naturalism, and its logical conclusion, which is known as nihilism, or you may have heard it pronounced nihilism. But I looked it up on Webster's Dictionary online, and the way that the computer voice pronounces it is nihilism. For anyone that's interested, Hannah. Okay. This is a great about a small church. Okay. Not to call you out or anything, and continue to do so, and to never stop. But we love you, Hannah. Okay. Nihilism. And so we'll get there. Hang with me. We'll get there. But what I want to say first about uh, these, all these worldviews are actually connected. And the, and the way that we're working our way through them is to see how thought progresses. Because what happens lots of times is we find ourselves in a place in our life where we believe something. And we have no idea why we believe it. How did I get to this place believing this thing? And when we look at America, the Western world, we've gotten to a place believing a lot of default opinions about things, and I don't even think we know how we got there. And what we'll see is that, and, and you'll see a lot of similarities between deism and naturalism, 
because deism is actually uh, something of an isthmus between these two great continents. An isthmus is a, a projection of land. And, and the two continents are theism, which is believing that there is a God and he exists and he works in the world, and naturalism, which we'll see today is that there is no God, that the natural world is all that there is. And so deism was kind of like uh, uh, the peninsula that came out to help connect those continents, the USSR and Alaska, the great isthmus. So without deism, perhaps naturalism would never have come about. Deism says that God created but is no longer involved in creation. Naturalism just takes one step further and says, uh, then why do we even need to posit that there's a God at all? And so they removed God from the equation. And I think this too is very, very close to home. We talked about deism is close to home. This is very, very close to home. I believe this is the default worldview that is taught in public schools. And it escalates in seriousness as you advance into higher and higher education. Uh, so we should not be surprised that 75% of young adults that identify as Christians uh, in their teenage years when they go off to college have no affiliation with any sort of faith organization at all. And many of them never come back to the faith. Why? Well, one of the, one of the main reasons is because re- very, very smart, very, very persuasive uh, professors that are worthy of great respect and have accomplished much and are created in the image of God and God has given them great brains aggressively or unaggressively teach a naturalistic worldview. Let me give you an example. Uh, There's a professor at the University of Texas in Austin named Steven Weinberg, and this is what he writes. Quote, I personally feel that the teaching of modern science is corrosive of religious belief, and I am all for that. If scientists can destroy the influence of religion on young people, then I think it may be the most important contribution that we can make. Why do I bring this up? I don't want to invoke anger against any and all professors that you've ever had, but I want to point out that naturalism is the default of many of the academic elite, many of your college professors, many of the people that you trust as truth-tellers, and it has this privileged position in our society, in our society, because it tells us that it's unbiased. The problem is, I'm not sure that it's unbiased. Now, it's unreligious, but that doesn't mean it's unbiased. So we have to uh, recognize this. We should probably... Just be honest about it. And if this is the case, unless you grew up in a complete bubble and you never went to a public school or never uh, watched any uh, television at all, uh, then the problem is you are being influenced heavily probably by a naturalistic worldview. And so it's good to understand what actually naturalism teaches and believes um, because we've all been influenced by it. Okay. So what is it? And how did it come about? We talked about deism developed in the 17th century, the Enlightenment, thinkers trying to bring unity between philosophical and theological discussion by reducing God's involvement 
But then what happened, as we've reduced God's involvement, there came a new wave of thinkers uh, that I would call naturalistic thinkers that followed behind them in the 18th, 19th, 20th century, and they really finished the job and just kind of removed God and reduced him completely. And, and the, why did they do this? Actually, I don't think all the motives are bad. I don't think they're just against God. In fact, I think many of them uh, perhaps still uh, deep down believed in a God, but they removed him from the equation of how we come about truth um, because I think that they thought it was more practical. So let me read to you a quote by uh, such a, uh, a writer. He says this. A lot of really... Um, sorry, I've lost my quote. Um, basically, I don't know where the quote went, but basically, he, he says, probably there is a God, but what use is he to us, practically? And so I think this was the sentiment of a lot of thinkers. They said, if we can't fully understand God or fully control God, let's take him out of the equation, keep him out of our box, so that speculating what God would be about, that haunting possibility that might exist, won't keep us from giving our full energies to the endeavors, to those things which we care about. And to be honest, a lot of really, really good work has been done inside of this controlled box. Inside of this controlled box. Why is that? Because if we don't have to ask, consider, search for God's design of things, God's design of why we do things, then we get to pick and choose whatever rules we want, play by those rules, and then, until we decide to change the rules, we can define what success within, that, within those rules mean. This gives us a ton of control, and it actually allows us to accomplish much. So I don't want to, I don't want to degrade what's been accomplished by naturalistic thinkers. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's very practical. Because what? God is very unpredictable. He doesn't fit in always to our definition of success. And so we take him out, then we can experience much success. So I think what you'll see if you look at the history of ideas, we talked about it, uh, Christian theists, oftentimes, theoretical Christians will function as deists, right? You understand that distinction? Um, when I lived in Texas for a couple years, I was theoretically a Texan. In fact, I wanted to think of myself as a Texan about the big hat and the boots. I had a Texas driver's license, Texas plates. I still drove a Volvo, so it's a little bit confusing, but I learned how to Texas two-step. I was actually a great two-stepper. I'd been to the dance halls more than many of my actual Texas friends. I learned to say y'all 
But when push came to shove, I was a functional Seattleite. I loved when the gray would take over the city. When I walked down the street, I did not look up and make eye contact with anybody. I kept my eyes down because I was a functional Seattleite. So although I was a theoretical Texan, I wanted to be a Texan. I talked about being from Texas. At the end of the day, I was a functional Seattleite, and I lived and moved in the world as a Seattleite and not a true cowboy. In fact, that was one of the hard things, to root for the cowboys. I couldn't do it. I was a functional Seattleite. And so what's happened, I think, uh, in the history of ideas is these theoretical Christians became functional deists, and then what happened is theoretical deists decided to, be, to live as functional naturalists because it worked better for them. And what we'll see actually is, uh, in an interesting a turn of events, uh, the logical conclusion of naturalism is nihilism, but, but theoretical nihilists almost always function as naturalists because it's incredibly difficult to live out consistently uh, the views of uh, naturalism. So, we've removed God from the equation because it just works better. For in the world of the naturalist, nature itself is elevated to primacy. Therefore, reason of the natural man becomes even more ultimate in knowing facts and morals. And so the human being is essentially in charge of, of their own uh, future. They make their own decisions. They're completely in control. So let's look at the eight questions and how they would answer them. And you can follow along if you want in your notes. Those questions are written there. Here, here is the way... Naturalists would answer the eight worldview questions. Question number one, what is prime reality or the really real? They would say this, prime reality is matter, the physical universe. Matter exists eternally and it is all that there is. God does not exist. So in, 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 in a way, Christians and naturalists have uh, one thing in common within this category this first question of prime reality and and it's this that we share a sense of awe in relation to that which we call prime so i don't know if you know who carl sagan is or if you ever watch pbs he's an american astronomer he's written books but he also created this award-winning documentary in the 80s uh, called cosmos okay you may have seen it on pbs that's public broadcasting station um, and it's actually the most widely watched series ever on PBS. In fact, it's estimated that uh, at least 500 million people across 60 different uh, countries have seen Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Now, he is a naturalist. He believes that the universe is all that there is. And he writes this, talking about his... Uh, relationship with the universe, prime reality. He says this, quote, our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation, as if the distant memory of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. And he's writing this about the cosmos. So Sagan, like 
I would try to do is attempting to stir, my, stir his audience to share that same sense of awe for his prime reality, which is the cosmos. Now this is interesting, right? So both naturalist and the Christian want to be moved to awe of that which they call prime reality. In a way, they're doing what? Worshiping. We always tend to worship that which is prime in our worldview. So I think it's fair in some ways to call naturalism a religion, the religion of naturalism. Question two. What is the nature of external reality that is the world around us? Naturalists would say the cosmos. They're real, they're eternal, even if in a different form. And they exist in a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. And we talked about a closed system, meaning there's no, no such thing as something transcendent outside of the closed system of the cosmos. The cosmos all, is all that there is, but it's real, uh, it's not an illusion, it's eternal, and it works in cause and effect. Question three, what is a human being? Naturalists would say a human being is a complex machine. Personality is a real thing, but it is an interrelation of chemical and physical properties that we do not yet fully understand. Of course, there's several things there that wouldn't jive with a Christian understanding. Question four, what happens to a person at death? Naturalists would say death is the extinction of personality and individuality. From dust we came to dust we go. Question five, why is it possible to know anything at all? They would say this, through our innate and autonomous human reason, including methods of science, we can know the universe. The cosmos, including the world, is understood to be in its normal state, which is to mean there's nothing wrong with it. It's exactly as it is and should be. And they would say, there's no such thing as special revelation. There's one kind of revelation, and that's the revelation of science and observation that we act upon the world through our human reason. Question six, how do we know what is right and wrong? Naturalists would say ethics is related only to the human being. They uh, are personal and chosen decisions of what's right and wrong. It's determined by human beings based on the situation and our autonomous reason. We decide what's right or wrong based on our situation. This ability to decide right from wrong came about with the appearance of the human being along with consciousness and self-determination. One naturalist wrote this, which I think is helpful to understand how they view this question. To discover true principles of morality, we need only to use common sense, commune with ourselves, reflect upon nature, consult visible interests. Whatever is advantageous is virtuous. Whatever is disadvantageous is a vice. And then he goes on to say this. So let's advise people to abstain from vice, not because of punishment in some other world, 
but because it will cause them suffering in this world. So basically what he's saying is human survival and thriving determines right and wrong. Now, is there anything we can agree with uh, as Christians? Well, of course there is. In fact, James Sire uh, says this. Well, even Christians must admit that many of the naturalists' ethical insights are valid. So they are valid. So they come to right conclusions about right and wrong. Indeed, theists should not be surprised that we can learn moral truths from observing human nature and behavior. For if a man and a woman are made in the image of God, and if the image is not totally destroyed by sin in the fall, they should be able, even if imperfectly, to reflect something of the goodness of God in them. So we shouldn't be surprised when uh, people with different worldviews come to similar conclusions about right and wrong. In fact, we should be very quick to uh, enthusiastically agree. But the problem is, and the primary distinction is, when he says, only through common sense. Now I'm not saying as Christians we turn off our common sense, but we take our common sense and we filter it through special revelation from God. That's the main difference. Whereas the naturalist has only common sense. And so it should trouble us a little bit because what if our common sense becomes not so common? What if we begin to disagree? Where do we turn? Everyone for themselves? The strongest man wins, gets to decide what's common going forward. It's a troubling, for me at least, uh, conclusion. Number seven, what is the meaning of human history? Naturalists would say human history is a linear stream of events linked by cause and effect, but without an overarching purpose. But without an overarching purpose, meaning history is moving somewhere, but nowhere in particular. It's just moving forward. And finally, eight, what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? Naturalism itself doesn't imply any particular core commitments, but rather each naturalist comes to core commitments either inadvertently, they adopt them, or they choose them as an individual. So those are the eight questions and the way the naturalist would answer and the question is, what makes this worldview so attractive? Because it's clearly attractive. Many people believe this and live by this. And I think the first uh, attractive piece of naturalism is that it appears to be honest and objective, which, may, which is to say that um, it, only, it seems to only accept into evidence those things which are observable and we're able to investigate. So you've probably heard uh, many scientists speak in terms of facts versus opinions. <clears throat> the conclusions they come to are facts. Uh, the conclusions of, say, philosophers or theologians would be opinions. That's attractive to a lot of people, that apparent honesty and objectivity. A second, I, I realize what has happened now. I, I, each of uh, very important things in my sermon notes, I put in red. Clearly my printer is not printing red anymore because there's giant gaps. I'm like, where did that quote go? That was a really, okay. So another quote is missing. 
So we'll just have to wing it. Which is probably better. Okay. So the second piece I think that's so attractive about uh, naturalism is this. It empowers us or it promises us that we get to be the masters of the universe. We get to be the real he-mans and she-womans or she, I don't even know. We get to be masters of the universe, which is to say, although theoretically it says human beings are not the center of the universe, we're just one small piece of chance and time has put us on this little blue planet and one of many, many uh, galaxies and solar systems. That's what it theoretically says. Functionally what it does is it puts us right at the center of the universe because we get to decide the way we use nature, the way we get to live. We get to judge right and wrong. So theoretically we're not the center, but functionally we get to be the center. And that's very, very attractive. That's very, very attractive. And so what are the ways that we get to be masters of the universe? Well, we master the elements, right? Through science. If nature is the prime reality, then to understand and control nature is in a way to be divine. We get to decide what to do with what we discover. And it's a very attractive part of this worldview. We also get to be masters of the society. Through economics and politics, we get to decide how things work. Now, uh, one of the most famous naturalists of all time is a guy by the name of Karl Marx. He is the father, if you will, of communism. But he was influenced by a guy named Ludwig Feuerbach. And Feuerbach was a naturalist, and he believed this about religion. He said, God in religion is a projection of human potentiality an expression of our unrealized ideals, which is to say the reason we have religion and we have these concepts of God is because we realize we're not everything that we're supposed to be, and so we put it on this, uh, this imaginary figure as a way of um, letting ourselves off the hook for not reaching it. And so he, of course, wants to get rid of religion because he believes it stunts our growth in actually reaching our potential. Does that make sense? If that's really true, that we just place on God everything that we're not, what are the implications of believing that this is what religion is? Again, a red quote is gone. This is the implication, though. Consider this. If this is what you believe, then... What you'll do, you'll admit there is no God, and then you will work by your own effort to bring about those ideals that you think that we put on God. So when you look at Karl Marx and how he's affected by this uh, way of thinking, it starts to make more sense. In fact, I think our minds, particularly in the West, are affected by this kind of thinking. This kind of thinking which says, you recognize that there's a problem, the best thing that you can do is fix the problem. I know as a Christian, I constantly struggle with this. 
I'm not saying we don't try to fix real problems, but look at what happened when Karl Marx is affected by this way of thinking. He writes the Communist Manifesto and influences his, his idea of what he calls revolutionary imperative, which is to say, we must overthrow any and all conditions in the human being that can, be that can abase a human being, enslave them, or disgrace them. We must, we have a revolutionary imperative to overthrow those conditions, okay? Now, here's the deal. That's actually not a terrible motive. That's a good thing. We, as Christians, should want to overthrow anything that enslaves or debases uh, any human beings. So it's not a terrible motive, but here's the way the thinking goes, whether it's from a uh, naturalist viewpoint or a Christian viewpoint. If we think this way, this is how we think. We say, one, it seems that there's a problem in our society, and we should do something about it, right? Okay, that's... A good thing, we should think that. Then we say, number two, it seems like the problem warrants a measure of urgency, right? Yes, it does. The line, uh, the, the, the thinking is good. Number three, we say, well, it doesn't seem like this God, whether we believe he exists or not, is dealing with it right now or dealing with it in its totality in the way that we would like. So maybe, four, let's do something about it on our own. Let's use our own hands and minds and influence to fix this issue once and for all, right? This is what makes naturalism so attractive. We don't have to stop and ask, perhaps there's a reason God allows this, or perhaps, and here's where it gets really tricky, if you get rid of God in your thinking, you don't have to ask at all, how would God want me to fix this issue? And so when we say, let's use our own hands, whose hands are we talking about? Human hands, human minds, and we get to decide the methods that best fix the problem. And what's so dangerous about that? What's so dangerous about that? Well, whose human hands? Who gets to pick the methods? And what you see, actually, those who took Marx's ideas and turned them into reality in a political, societal sense, their hands weren't great hands. And a lot of people were killed. All in the name of a good cause, which is overthrowing certain societal evils, which were real evil that needed to be overthrown. But whose hands... Whose methods do we get to choose? If there's no God, it's really whoever has the most money, the most power, the most influence, they tend to get to choose the methods to fix the real problems. And if there's no God and there's no waiting on God, then patience is gone. And I think we enter into a very scary world. So we've got to ask questions of every worldview. We have to ask questions of naturalism. Is it congruent? Is it consistent? Is it coherent?
And as we look at this view, one of the most difficult aspects of naturalism is the question, why? It's a simple question, why? You say that the world is this way and these things are important, why? You say that we should fix the world's problems in this way, why? You say that it's imperative, but why should I struggle for a better society when there's no end in mind? Why should I uh, struggle against exploitation? Why should I find a cure for cancer? What's the goal? What's the purpose? What's the meaning of all this striving? Why? Is it because of morality? Well, I can't say that because morality is actually not a thing. It's just something that we choose. Our morality might change, so our morality doesn't tell us why. It's just one of the answers. Is it because of justice or fairness? Similarly, those are just ideological constructions that we come up as human beings because we're the center. And so these why questions lead, like I said, to the logical conclusion of naturalism, which is known as nihilism. It's the natural child of naturalism. Now that's not to say that every naturalist is a nihilist because not every naturalist wants to live consistently within their worldview. But nihilism, I believe, if we're honest about it, is the natural conclusion And it's more of a feeling than a worldview. It's more of a negation of all worldviews than actually a set of beliefs. But it it asks these tough questions of naturalism. It asks the questions, why? And if you want to be consistent with a naturalistic understanding of the world, it actually answers the questions this way. Is there any real freedom in a naturalistic worldview? And nihilists will say no, because we live in a closed system of cause and effect. So if you think about going to buy a sandwich, you say, I'm hungry, I want to go buy a sandwich, and you know that there's a deli around the corner. Now you can go around the corner, you can buy a deli sandwich to satisfy your hunger. Or you could go around the corner and you could steal the sandwich to satisfy your hunger. And you think to yourself, well, you see, I have self-determination. I get to choose what I do to satisfy my hunger, to do it this way or that way. I have self-determination, right, which is freedom. I have freedom to choose. Not so fast, the nihilist says. You think that you can do whatever you want. But what you want is already determined for you. Now you might not have the ability, the omniscience to see all the things that play into that. But the nihilist is is honest. If we live in a cause and effect closed system, I didn't get to pick my parents, my genetic makeup. I didn't get to pick uh, my family of origin or the experience I had growing up. I didn't get to pick that I was hungry. I didn't get to pick that there was a deli there. And so when you start to tear back the onion, what you realize is that I might not be as free as I thought I was free. And nihilism becomes very, very scary, and it leads to great despair. 
and probably the most well-known nihilist is Friedrich Nietzsche. And I'll just read you a quote. And, and the thing about Nietzsche is that he was very, very consistent and very, very honest. And he said this, If one were omniscient, one would be able to calculate each individual human action in advance, each step in the progress of knowledge, each error, each act of malice, to be sure the acting man is actually caught in an illusion of volition. If the wheel of the world were to stand still for a moment and an omniscient calculating mind were able to take advantage of this interpretation, he would be able to tell into the farthest future of each being and describe every rut the wheel, would, the wheel will roll upon. The acting man's delusion about himself, his assumption that free will exists is also part of the calculating mechanism. So we have no real freedom, we have no real will, we are just a piece of machinery in the cosmos, a very complex toy, you could say. But whose toy are we? The toy of an impersonal cosmic force, which is the material universe. And we have to come to the conclusion that many naturalist psychologists comes to, including a guy by the name of B.F. Skinner that says this, a person does not act on the world, but the world acts on the person. And if we have no real freedom and no real will, if we're just a piece of the mechanism, a complex toy, and the world acts upon us, then if we're honest, we have no real significance, there's no real meaning to our lives, which means there's no real hope. And so, unfortunately, many nihilists fall deep into despair, depression. Oftentimes, suicide is a real option for people that come to this realization. And so, when we enter into a conversation and we start to realize this is the peop way people view the world, the question I think that we want to ask is this. Why? What's the point? Why do we strive? What are we doing? And when we ask this question, we need to pray that God fills us with an intense love for that person because they have no idea how to answer that question because their worldview doesn't answer it. It leaves them hopeless without meaning or significance, if they're very, very honest. So with great, deep, intense compassion, the compassion of Christ, we ask the question, why? What's the point? Now here is the great truth. Our longing for meaning, our longing for significance, our longing for value and dignity is not an empty hope that accidentally got put there by a chink in the calculator that created us accidentally with time and chance. The reason why every human being feels it, longs for it, wants it, finds some way to get it, 
is because we were meant to have it. We were meant to realize that we have significance in this world, that we, there is meaning in this world, that our lives have purpose. So it's not an accident, it's real. And that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it proves that it's real. That God actually sent his son into the world because you know what? The world was broken. That is a huge implication of a naturalistic worldview that says, no, the world is as it should be. But when we look around and we see in our own lives and the lives of others, we realize that it is broken. It is not whole. We get that. I think what's so hard about and what gets me very angry and fired up when I think about this is that the people that have the influence that tend to push this worldview They tend to be at the top, the cream of the crop. The greatest minds that lead to great financial security and success. But what about the person that doesn't have that? They're supposed to believe that their life is all that it can be, that there's nothing broken or wrong, that this is the state of a cold, silent universe. The gospel tells us no. The gospel tells us that God created and the creation was good. But what happened is that we rebelled against God and we fell from grace. And because of that, all things were affected. And so the universe and people and relationships are all broken. They're not as they can be. And so God didn't leave us in that desperate state, but he sent a rescue. And his name was Jesus Christ. And he lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we should have died to atone for and make sacrifice for and to fix the problem that was keeping us from redemption. But then he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and proved that there is actually something on the other side of the despair, which is life. And that is the best news, the greatest good that we could ever hope for. And the gospel teaches us that. And we have that to share with the world. So when we ask people, what's the point? And they cannot think of an answer. Hopefully we get the chance to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is not normal. It has fallen. Human beings are not as they fully can be, but they're marred but capable of redemption. History isn't a meaningless, directionless, linear chain of cause and effect. It has an end goal And it's being guided by an almighty, powerful, sovereign God. And he is good and he wants our best good. But he's also patient to bring about his good in the world. That's the historic Christian message, the worldview uh, that I, of course, believe is true. And it's the best news. So in your bulletins, you'll see Romans 8, 18 through 30. I want to read it quickly. Romans 8, 18 through 30 says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see that? This isn't as good as it gets, guys. There's something better. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hopes that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is this saying? Even creation is not perfect. 
that which Carl Sagan looks at in awe and wonder is great and good, but it's broken. There's something even better in store for creation. Earthquakes, hurricanes, disease, cancer is not the best this world has to offer. And now, only the creation, or sorry, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly and we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, which is to say our bodies are not functioning as best that they can. God will give us redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly so that that feeling that things are not as they should be is not a mistake, but it's a reality that God wants to redeem. And then he says this, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Something is broken, but there is hope that it won't always be broken. But naturalists can only hope in what they see, because what they see is all that exists. There is no future beyond what we can see. There is no God beyond what we can see. There is no truth beyond what we can see. But they hope only in what they see. And that kind of hope, the Apostle Paul says here, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is no hope at all. Hope is in something you cannot see, but you trust in the Almighty God to bring about. Why? Why can we hope in him? Because he's done it once and he'll do it again. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the redemption, the resurrection. That's the importance of the gospel. That Jesus Christ historically, literally rose from the dead to prove that God is a God of redemption. My heart breaks for people that see the world this way that see the world as all that there is to hope in because if they're honest, it's a meaningless, purposeless, hopeless world because the world is cold and it's silent and there's, it is all that there is. Let, let's not be people that keep the truth of the gospel away from those people that if they're honest, are left in despair, hopeless. Let us remind ourselves daily of the hope of the gospel, the meaning that is inherent in the truth of Scripture, and live with great purpose and bring people along. And let me close with this. Stick with me here, because this is, you're going to want to hear this. One of the most well-known nihilistic artists is a playwright by the name of Samuel Beckett. And he wrote a play called Breathe. And this will explain what I think is a very honest, real, nihilistic, and I think naturalistic view of the world. And he puts it into a play. The play is 35 seconds long. There's no human actors, 
on the stage is just a pile of rubble. And on the stage in the pile of rubble, there's a dim light that starts and the light begins to brighten, but never fully. And then it recedes into the dimness. There are no words in the play, just a cry at the beginning of the play that's recorded, an inhaled breath, and an exhaled breath, and a cry at the end of the play. For Samuel Beckett, life is a meaningless breath. And our hearts should break. Our hearts should break when we hear people talk about life that way. Let me read you what God says about life. Genesis 2 says this, and the creation of man and woman. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and, in the, and, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust and from the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life. And the man became a living being. In both worldviews, ours and naturalists, life is but a breath. But rather than a meaningless, valueless, purposeless breath, human beings are infused with all the meaning and value and purpose and dignity that is possible because it's the breath of the Almighty God. And though sin and guilt separates us from the fullness of what that breath can be in us, there is hope that once again we can be restored to that beautiful day where the breath of God lived perfectly and fully in us because of the death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We have true hope to reclaim what was lost. Life is not a meaningless breath. Breath is infused with the life of God. Let us live that life together. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the human race who think of the universe as cold and silent, without design, but a product of lots of time and lots of chance that we are just complex machines living out a predetermined life with no real freedom, no will, no significance or meaning, but just a short breath and a blip of meaningless history. Lord, for the people in this city who consciously or subconsciously believe that that is true, Lord, may they encounter someone with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they encounter that person, Lord, give that person the courage to not be silent, but to speak up and share that good news, that there is hope, there is dignity, there is significance, there is ultimate meaning in this life because there is a God and he loves us and he wants relationship with us and he's gone to the ends of the earth 
by sending his son to die, that we might have that significance fully back. Lord, give us in this room, the people of this church, the boldness to stick in conversations with those who might be living a meaningless existence. Make our, may our hearts break, Lord, for the people who see you and this world in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.